0: It's my car When I buy gas don't get me very far. My baby needs some milk to drink and mama wants her wine. I get a check each week but I don't know what's mine I'm losing track I don't know what to do I got the budgeting blues. Welcome to Sensible Chat with your host Sensible Bobby the show that's all about budgeting, smart spending and saving. It's open enrollment time for health insurance. If the thought of choosing the right plan makes you nauseous, we've got the cure. Scott Heiser is with us today. He's been a healthcare consultant for over 20 years and wrote a great book, Healthcare is Making Me Sick. Learn the rules to regain control and fight for your healthcare. You'll hear from him in just a few minutes. And after class, Sensible Bobby's going to share another saving secret with you. But first, she's going to cover some cost-cutting tips for the holiday season. So right now, let's get to her. The debt destroyer, the master of money, the saver of sawbacks, the nanny of the note. It is Sensible Bobby.
1: Thanks, Scott. I'm so thankful for you and your fabulous introductions. We are just a few weeks before Thanksgiving. Can you believe it? This is the busy season when you're running around, prepping for the holidays, with so much to think about, so many errands to run, traditions to keep up with, and money to spend, this is the easiest time of the year to really destroy your budget if you're not paying attention. By the way, this is why I started my holiday slash gift fund, so that I'm saving all year long and the money's already there when it comes time to start thinking about all this holiday stuff. But the other reason is that it gives me a limit. According to a poll on CreditCards.com, 61% of people with credit card debt are willing to get in deeper for the holidays, and 30% who are currently debt-free said they'll take on new debt for the holidays. The question we all need to ask ourselves is why. Seriously, it's just a question. If it's truly what you want, have at it. But I think for a lot of us, we feel pressured to spend around the holidays, and certainly pressured to participate in certain traditions gift-giving being one of the more expensive. It's hard to withstand the pressure of the holidays, and most of us have spent without thinking about the consequences at one time or another. So before we get too deep into the season, let's take a few minutes to stop and at least think it through. Whatever decisions we make are our own, but at least we can be intentional about it instead of spending mindlessly now and waking up in January wondering where our money went. Thanksgiving is just a couple weeks away, and if you're cooking dinner, it can get expensive. So here are some ways to cut those costs. Number one, if your guests are asking what they can bring, take advantage of the opportunity to delegate not only some of the work, but some of the cost. Sometimes we feel obligated to say, "Yeah, it's okay, don't bring anything. But I've been on the receiving end of that, and it's kind of a bummer. I want to be involved, and I don't want to seem cheap by showing up empty-handed, but I also don't want to be the fifth person to walk in with the same bottle of wine. So if my host can tell me what they truly need, I would be ecstatic to bring it. You could even turn it into a potluck and make it a tradition that every year, everyone brings a dish. Here's another idea so you don't have to bring the same dish every year, and nothing gets forgotten. Make a list of all the dishes you'd like as part of the meal, including main courses, side dishes, appetizers, drinks, desserts, all of it. Then cut them into slips of paper, fold them up, and throw them into a hat. Now, each person picks a slip of paper, and that's what they bring. Granted, there are some things that will cost more. If you get the turkey and someone else gets a bag of chips, you might be a little disgruntled. So put a couple of the less expensive items together on one slip of paper, while the more expensive ones stand alone. And of course, scour the internet for those grocery store coupons. And don't forget to use your cashback apps to save a few extra pennies. If you're like me and can't cook at all, you're hoping someone else can. And I'm lucky there are a lot of great cooks in my family, including Scott. He is fabulous. But if I was hosting Thanksgiving dinner, I must be honest, I would really prefer to order it from a restaurant, and believe me, so would my guests. But that can get expensive too, so if you're having a group of people who hate to cook or just don't have the time, you could go online and find out how much it costs to order it and then take up a collection. Now, some of you might think that goes against the Thanksgiving tradition, but when you really get down to it, the whole idea is being together, right? And a lot of us like eating the traditional foods on that day. So you can still do that and cut out all the work that goes with it without spending a fortune. I mean, seriously, it seems like way more hassle than it's worth to slave over a hot stove in the kitchen for half the day just for one meal. I'd like to spend more time socializing with family and friends personally. But for a lot of people, part of the socializing is being in the kitchen cooking together whatever floats your boat. I'm just suggesting thinking it through so you can get the most out of your holiday instead of just going through the motions because that's how it's supposed to be done. By the way, I checked out a few restaurants online, including Cracker Barrel and Marie Callender's, and you can get a full traditional Thanksgiving meal for $12.50 to $20 per person. Not too shabby. If you're really strapped for cash this year or just want to do something different, get your friends and family together and volunteer at a soup kitchen. You'll get a free meal and help others that are less fortunate. Moving past Thanksgiving, you can apply these same techniques to Christmas dinner, but what about gifts? Is it worth going into debt just to give a gift? Would you want someone to go into debt in order to give you a gift? What's the meaning behind the gift? Is it just a gesture to say you care or something that will change a life? The best gifts don't always cost money. It's the thought that counts, right? So let's spend more on the thought than on the gift. Now, I'm not suggesting you should never spend money on a gift, but I am saying that creativity often provides better gifts than cash ever could. Plus, think about how much more fun it would be to really put some thought, time, and maybe even some work into a special gift for someone rather than fighting the crowds at the mall, wasting gas from driving all over town, and spending more than you can afford on a gift just to cross it off your list. You could give homemade crafts, baked goods, or even a coupon book that includes babysitting, being a personal shopper, or mowing the lawn. Write them a song or a poem, or even just a personal letter about what they mean to you. Personally, I love these type of gifts way more than the gift card to a place I'll never go. If you are buying a gift but are strapped for cash, try avoiding the bows, name tags, and even wrapping paper or bags that make the gift even more expensive. Get creative with your wrapping. I've used newspaper, aluminum foil, and tissue paper. And I just read an article that suggested reusing tins, cans, and jars. If you can still find paper grocery bags, those work too. How about old calendar pages that are going to get thrown out anyway? Fabric shopping bags or fabric scraps? You can hit the thrift stores for cheaper wrapping too. If you do have a budget in place, remember to check it before you start buying and update it frequently because you're going to be buying frequently. There is nothing worse than spending all the time and effort on putting a budget in place only to look back a month or two from now and realize you blew right past it. But if you're not tracking your expenses frequently while you're spending frequently, that's exactly what's going to happen. So set aside a time each day or week to enter your transactions so you always have an accurate account of how much you have left to spend. When you succeed at staying within your budget while still enjoying the holidays, it will truly feel like the most wonderful time of the year. Before we get there, though, we've got to go through a not-so-wonderful time of the year, which is Open Enrollment for Health Insurance. I know, I get queasy just thinking about it. But we need to talk about this because we spend a lot of money on healthcare and health insurance. And the more we know, the more we can save.
0: So here we go. Welcome back, class. Sensible University is now in session. Today's guest professor is Scott Heiser, author of Healthcare is Making Me Sick. Scott spent more than 20 years working on behalf of employers and their employees in the healthcare industry. His clients ranged from Fortune 500 companies to universities to mid and small employers. Now he's turning his attention to helping the average American, the people who have been confused, bewildered, and are underrepresented in the healthcare system.
1: Scott, thanks for being our guest professor today.
0: Well, thank you for having me. and appreciate being on.
1: Healthcare is making me sick. What a fabulous name for this book. And especially right now while we're in open enrollment, because I have been looking for somebody to tell me what I'm supposed to do while I'm mired in this place of trying to sift through all these health insurance programs and what kind of coverage I'm actually getting, what I'm paying for it all these different things, and it's so confusing for so many people. So thank you for your book, and hopefully we can sift through some of this today and get some answers for our listeners.
2: That's certainly our goal.
1: In the book, I thought it was interesting that you wrote, healthcare is poised to be the greatest David and Goliath story ever told. What do you mean by that?
2: Most people are familiar with David and Goliath. The little guy takes on the Goliath, the giant, and he wins. So what we're looking at is one-sixth of the U.S. economy and growing. That includes health insurance and then health care, which is taking care of yourself. Mostly controlled by, I call it a third-party dilemma, insurance, government, and then health providers, hospitals, pharmacy, that environment. And those are some enormous players controlling a sixth of the economy. And what I've come to believe over time and being the industry for 26 years in a consultative capacity to corporations with their employee benefit health plans is that to move the needle and, and to start manning better efficacy out of our healthcare experiences, meaning we get better costs and better outcomes, we need to become consumers of healthcare. And right now, we are disassociated with the purchasing, price, quality, all aspects of healthcare. And we are passive participants in our own healthcare, which to me makes no sense in the world, given that your health, your body is the greatest asset you're ever given. And we don't spend as much time on it as we do in researching, buying a phone, buying a pair of gym shoes, buying a television set, you name it. We're searching and researching and comparing all of those aspects on other purchases we make, but not our healthcare. So, what I'm trying to encourage people to do is that you can understand more about your healthcare. You can get information that allows you to make better decisions, and you can become that David and slew Goliath, at least on your behalf. And if we all start doing it on our own behalf, maybe we make a paradigm shift in the country and can start to curtail the overall healthcare experience that we've had to date.
1: You know, the most important thing is always that that first step of somebody telling you it is actually possible is so freeing because most of us feel like there's just nothing we can do about it. And that's probably why. I mean, I know for me, that's why I'm not a good consumer of healthcare because I just get so overwhelmed by it. I feel like it's not possible. And so I'm just going to let it go. Why waste my time if I can't get there? Right. But your book seems to be designed to empower people to take charge of their health care, which I love. But it's a completely overwhelming thought. So where do we start? Because I understand from your book, it seems like your answer to where we start is a health risk assessment. Is that correct? And if so, can you explain what that is?
2: Right. I'll I'll broaden the health risk assessment to your health profile, who you are in regards to your health. I kind of looked at it and said, let's treat this like any other purchasing decision, business decision you make in life. Most times you sit down and you understand your objectives, what you want, what your resources are, what your time frame is. You get all of that information down and then you go search for the thing you're looking for. Doesn't happen in the healthcare arena, whether it's health and I make a distinction here. There's health care and there's health insurance. And they are two distinctly different things and they are constantly conflated. Health insurance is a vehicle to pay for healthcare. Healthcare is the industry that provides and helps individuals stay healthy. And then there's your own individual health and how you maintain your own body to get the maximum out of it. So what I really mean by health risk assessment is that is a tool that people can take a test or a questionnaire based on lifestyle and then some biometric, meaning blood work, blood pressure, weight those type issues to determine and get a future look into what their health might be. And I think people should also then combine that with their family history. And a combination of the two starts to tell you what you probably will have in the future and what you're having right now. Now you are starting to define who you are as a health individual. And with that basis, you can now then begin to address the market, understanding who you are. So as you get into the confusing world, you cut through and say, does it address whatever I'm talking about, whether it's health insurance or my doctor or the hospital or my nutrition plan, does it address what my needs are? Am I a diabetic? Am I somebody with arthritis? Am I somebody with heart conditions? Am I perfectly healthy? And so where can we take this test? So if you're working and you're offered an employee benefit program, I'd say over 50% of the programs now have some type of wellness program, which would include a health risk assessment. You can also look to hospitals and see if they have a health risk assessment or potentially your doctor will do the same. And then those are all provided for you at no cost and you take those. Again, it's not the end all. It's just a beginning to start to understand who you are. So if you can't find a health risk assessment, but you have a primary care physician and you can get your biometrics with them and have a discussion with them, that's a good basis. And you write that down. You write down all the claim history or health situations you had, surgeries, medicines, so on and so forth, illnesses over time. And you get with your family and do the same thing. You can construct that on your own, but it's nice to have a health risk assessment if you can access one.
1: And let's put this into context for the healthcare consumer, because if we have this information that can help us decide what kind of health insurance plan we need, right?
2: Yes. Because without it you don't know what's the right program and, and we'll get into this, I imagine, in a second. But there's deductibles and co insurance and co-pays and you know, the alphabet soup of insurance, mm-hmm. the HMOs, PPOs, HRAs, HSS. I don't know if it's done that way to be purposely confusing or that's just the nature <laughs> of the industry. But that is the way it is. It's government and insurance have the most acronyms out there of any two industries out there. But yeah, it is it is the basis because then now you can cut through that and the clutter and decide what fits for you.
1: And so you suggest doing that to break it down, because that can be kind of an overwhelming thing. Okay, let's say I have my health risk assessment now, and I kind of know what my elements are, my family history is and everything. But in a broad sense, that's still pretty overwhelming. But what I liked in your book was that you said you can kind of take that into consideration for what you might need in the next year, because obviously open enrollment happens every year. So if we can just focus on one year at a time, we can kind of hone in on what we need right
2: now, right? Exactly. So, what you want to do is within that understanding of your health profile, what do you have this year? How many times did you see the doctor? Why did you see the doctor? And are those going to be reoccurring issues? Can you anticipate some of those costs coming next year? Well, now you start to understand your cash flow needs. Can you cover that yourself or can you not? And that'll help you determine what type of plan design you would pick that will meet those needs. And then you want to factor in there. Once you know that, you want to factor in your own cash flow needs not needs, but the actual cash flows that you live under and what your resources are. And then what the book also will do is you've now identified maybe some health situations you have. I've given some standards, some catastrophic procedures in the range in between to say, here's what these things cost. Because that, that's the other part of the equation. You say, yeah, so I'm going to have the sniffles and I'm going to have uh, earache and I oh, and I've got diabetes on top. So what does that mean? So you got to understand what those things cost. So I've given a means to look at some of those. You can also Google them and get general pricing. And now you know what you're going to spend during the year or probably spend so that when you look at the plans, you can say, do these cover me appropriately?
1: Okay. and so if I'm seeing this cost here, but I'm being charged way more than your book says I should be, is that just because it's just a generalization or do I need to speak up and say, hey, you're overcharging me? What can I do about that?
2: That's a whole another subject, and when we get in and start talking about how you negotiate with your doctors and hospitals and understanding, right. the healthcare industry is just not really transparent like other industries have become. You know, the automobile industry now, and buying a new car, you can go on to Toyota, Ford, doesn't matter, new name a manufacturer, and they'll pull the other manufacturer list price up. They'll show you car models. You could you can compare everything down the nth degree. You can't so much yet, and that's changing in the healthcare arena. Right. So the price I give you is a ballpark to start with. But here's the bottom line. There's different prices all over the place. Different hospitals for the same procedure charge different costs in the same city, let alone across the state line, let alone across the country. So that's actually the exciting part that I see is transparency is starting to crack through. There are ways to get at transparency. And we can talk about that in a minute. But once you get that, Knowledge is power. Francis Bacon said that. Knowledge is power. So once you get the transparency and you can see the cost and you can start to compare, you can start to have a dialogue with your providers, which is absolutely okay. And what I would suggest is if your provider's not okay with talking about that and he's not providing you other aspects of treating you, they're not the right provider. Yeah. And you need to think about that like you'd think about any other purchase you make.
1: Now, I want to back up just a minute because you were talking about auto insurance and something that I found very interesting in your book was the point you made when you compared health insurance to auto insurance and how high auto insurance would be if things like oil changes and gas were included in our policies. Can you explain that scenario in terms of health care?
2: Right. You know, if you put gas on top of the insurance policy you're paying for, for catastrophic events when an automobile accident, the price would go through the roof for auto insurance. Plus the utilization would go through the roof. So it's double-handed. People would be, because they're getting insurance covered on the gasoline, they'd use it more. So let's just take one simple example and transfer that to healthcare. Just a simple doctor's office visit. Back to your point, what I listed in some of the charges in there, there's retail charges in very, very broad ballpark. A retail cost for a primary care physician's $100, $120 in that range. Then you can have costs through your insurance company. They'll offer discounts. They can get $80 in general. Then there's telemedicine that you could use that you could probably get certain procedures done for $50. So there's there's a range of services that you can have. And then there's different primary care charges for different primary care providers in different areas. So what you want to do is you want to say, should I use my network provider through my insurance company get $80? Do they have a telemedicine service to get $50? And should I find the lowest cost? And if I'm finding the lowest cost, I want to use that. And then I want to look to my insurance plan and say, should I cover that at the lowest level? Meaning, should all my office visits be covered 100%? Should I have a $20 copay? Or should I not have any copay and just pay 100% for my primary care physician charges? Meaning, can I afford 50 bucks or 80 bucks every time I go? Because I'm only going to go three times a year. So, if I'm only going to do that three times a year, should I pay? You have to pay more to get an office visit copay of $20 for a physician. You look to the premium for the plans you're looking at, because premium that you pay is a fixed guaranteed cost you got to pay monthly, versus you go into deductibles, coinsurance, copays, out of pocket costs. Those are all variable costs. You don't incur those until you actually have an expense. In a simple way, think about this. An insurance company is a business. If they're going to pay for most of the office visit or any procedure, they're going to do that and you're going to pay them for that. But what you're not just, you're not paying for the actual cost of that service alone. You're paying for the cost of that service, plus the administration of the services of the insurance company to manage that, plus margin, what they call margin is a, a, a fudge factor. They don't know, they can't predict exactly how many claims are going to come in. So they put a little cushion on it. And then they have profit. It's the utility cost of the dollar. If you can afford to pay for something, don't have an insurance company put it in their plan for you because you're going to pay them 15 or 20% on top of the cost.
1: I love that. So let's expound upon that a little bit because we're in open enrollment season right now. So a lot of us are trying to figure out this health insurance policy thing and which one to buy for next year. In the book, you have uh, a health insurance purchasing checklist. And I assume that you've probably already given a couple of things off that list. But tell us more about what's on this checklist and how we can use that to pick our best plan.
2: Right. So first things first, know yourself. We've talked about that. So what I'm going to presume is you're coming to the table. One of your listeners is coming to the table. They know who they are from a health profile. They know their cash flow needs for the next year. They know what the cost of those services that they might incur are going to happen. And then the other factor I would put in there is kind of their own intestinal fortitude. You can plan all that out. But if someone is very low risk tolerance, meaning if claims start coming in or things aren't exactly the way they planned and that makes them nervous, then they may want more insurance. So that's another factor they need to do. But what they're going to want to look at is they're going to look at what are all plans available to them. And this is part of the checklist. And if you're an individual, you're going to the healthcare.gov market or the ACA market. If you're with an employer's plan, you will go to your employer's offerings. You'll want to look at the plan designs they're offering. You're going to want to look at the premiums of those plan designs, what those different plans cost. And the difference in the plan designs will dictate what the premiums are. You're going to then want to look at tax incentive situations offered, and this will be primarily just through the employer section of the plan, meaning can you take the premium on a pre-tax deduction basis, meaning you can pay for that premium before you're taxed, so you're getting a greater buying power with your dollar. And then you'll want to know when the open enrollment period is for individuals that starts 11-1, finishes 12-31. For employers, that can happen throughout the year. So you get one shot a year, so you need to be prepared diving down a little bit deeper. When you start looking at the plan designs, now you know what you're going to spend. You're going to look at the deductibles, co-pays and the co-insurance. And those are all the variable amounts. And we've talked about that earlier that you have to pay when you use the services. A deductible is something you have to pay out of your own pocket up front before the insurance kicks in. And the coinsurance pays after the deductible has been met and it'll pay up to a certain amount, maximum amount, Let's say it's $1,000. You have a $500 deductible. You have to pay $500. After that, if you have 80% coinsurance, the plan will pay 80%. The insurance company will. You have to pay 20% up to a maximum of, let's say, $1,000. After $1,000, the insurance company pays 100%. And then the last one is co would be if, an, and they're generally aligned to physician office visits, and it can be a primary care physician and specialist pharmacy emergency rooms, and that's what they're generally tied to. And those you pay regardless of your deductible, they supersede the deductible. So you could go to an office visit and pay, for example, $20 and have that coverage and not have to meet the deductible. Those are the three areas you've got to understand. And then the constant is the premium. You will pay that monthly regardless. So what you want to start doing is comparing the differences between the premium and those other features, the deductibles, copays, and coinsurance. And find out what's the right balance for you, given your cash flow situation.
1: Right. Because the lower the premium, the more attractive it's going to look from a monthly basis. But if you're paying a low premium and have a huge deductible that you can't pay out of pocket, you might find yourself in trouble, correct?
2: Correct. Again, we go back to who you are. Let's just take the 29-year-old male. Low likelihood they're going to have any claims if you're not going to have any claims, should you be buying a $100 deductible plan with a $1,000 out of pocket? Or should you maybe take a $6,000 deductible plan? What you really need is you need catastrophic. You have a motorcycle accident and you have catastrophic claims. That's what you need. So then you can take the lower premium and maybe save the difference.
1: And the good news about a high deductible plan, uh, at least in my experience, has been the HSA. Because if you can combine that and save money in your HSA, then you have that deductible there, presumably if you can save that much in your HSA, in case you need to pay out of pocket.
2: That is the tax incentives that we were talking about. This is the third point you should look into. So now if you, let's take the analogy of a 28-year-old male going down the line, they don't think they're going to have it. They take the high deductible plan, but to your point, Let's put a health savings account on there, and now you can take pre-tax again money to put into account that is for to offset that deductible if it happens. Here's the beauty of it. If you don't have that deductible that year, you don't need it, it rolls over and builds. So a lot of people should start looking at this as a potential medical retirement program because if you capped out on your 401k, you've maxed out on that and you can't give any more. This is another way to do it on pre-tax money. And I think most people are in the mindset, you should pay your fair share to Uncle Sam, but you don't need to pay any more than you have to. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. Now let's talk about the difference between the HSA, HRA and FSA, because I know there's a lot of confusion, especially since HSA rolls over and you can save, like you said, for retirement, but the HRA and the FSA are not like that. So can you explain a little bit about the difference?
2: Yeah, so let, let's address that. The, Health savings account applies to only high deductible health plans, so you have to have a certain level of deductible and out-of-pocket, and you can't have any co-pays involved with that. What you can then do is take the money that the deductible represents and deduct that on a pre-tax basis and save it in an account in a bank. Generally, after $1,000 that you've accrued, the bank will allow you to invest that in in a range of mutual funds that they offer. So you can actually get into the market, and, to the point I made earlier about a medical retirement account, have the money maybe work for you. So you're gaining whatever your tax bracket is, you're gaining that additional buying power and putting that in, in the account. It rolls over every single year. It is your money. No one can take that money. At 59 and a half, you can deduct it like a 401k. And you can use it for medical expenses, medical premiums at that point in time, or if you want to buy a boat, you can buy a boat with it. It's your money. The FSA is a flexible spending account. And that vehicle is only offered through employer plans for this main reason, because what the employer does is the employer backstops and puts the money available in a flexible spending account. So what an employer would do, let's say that you have a $2,000 deductible plan with a $4,000 maximum out-of-pocket. The employer will put a flexible spending account on it. And the employer did that. They raised it up to a $2,000, $4,000 because they saved money doing that. The employers then can, with a flexible spending account, maybe contribute up to $1,000 for that given year for health expenses, related health expenses. So in essence, For those that need it, it reduces the deductible $1,000 because now there's $1,000 you can tap into your flexible spending account and use. That does not roll over. The portions of it can roll over, but the whole amount does not roll over and it is not your money. It's your employer's money that they're extending to you while you're employed. Then there's a section 125 premium reduction, and that's a no-brainer. Everybody should take that. That's through your employer. That allows you to pay your health premiums on a pre-tax basis. So that's a That's a guarantee that you should absolutely do.
1: And just to put this out there, I've talked about this before, but the HSA and the FSA, when using them together, you have to be really careful, right? Because there's pretty strict restrictions on that.
2: Yeah, you can't use a medical FSA with an HSA, which is only medically based. But some employers, and this is going to get too technical, can offer an HSA on the medical and offer an FSA on the dental or on vision coverage or on other coverages.
1: Let's talk about the difference between an HMO and a PPO because I used to believe that a PPO pretty much meant that I was going to have the deductible and the out-of-pocket and the HMO meant I was going to have a copay. Is that still the case or is there more to it than that?
2: The one constant is that everything changes. What you're paying is the network and the structure of it. Network meaning the provider network that it's available to you. The concept of a PPO is a preferred provider organization, and that means the Insurance company contracts with a set of providers, offers that to you, and garners a discount from those providers by combining them and offering to their membership. And if you go there, you receive those discounts. If you don't use one of those doctors, you go out of network or a non-participant, there are still benefits available. The deductible is twice as high. The out-of-pocket is twice as high as it would be if you were in-network. So that's the major difference is you choose a network, you get a better discount. But if those doctors, that hospital is not the ones you want to use, you can still get coverage and go out of network. It's just more expensive. The HMO is there's a network and that's it. So you use that network and they get discounts and generally a little bit better than a PPO. But if you don't click with one of the providers in there or you can't find the provider you want, there is no out of network benefit.
1: So that's a very interesting point because recently I talked to a woman who had been hit with a huge, huge medical bill because she was out of network and did not find out about it until after an emergency surgery, even though she actually asked the doctor if she would be covered and only after the fact found out that she was indeed out of network and had all this money to pay. Obviously, then she had a PPO. So number one, I guess if we want to avoid these out of pocket shocks because it seems like a A lot of people are dealing with this now that they're out of network and don't know it. So first of all, I want to hear from you how we can best avoid that if we do have a PPO. And if I am correct in hearing from you that if we have an HMO, that's not even a possibility.
2: Yeah. With an HMO, your coverage is available through their provider directory. That's it. There are no other options. So if you're picking plans again at open enrollment and you find an HMO, generally they're less expensive because they have a narrower network. So you look at the network and, and again, if you know who you are and what you're going to have and you find your doctors in there and everything's in there, that's a viable option. There's nothing wrong with that. You just know that that's going to be your world. On the PPO, though, if you've gone out and emergencies are always the toughest one because you are not usually at your full capacity in an emergency. right? And it's hard to ask those questions. And a lot of times you're not at home, you're traveling and it's even more confusing. So what do you do? You always want to look at your network. So we'll step back for a second, say maybe non-emergency. If what you're going to have done needs to be done, look in your directory and find the providers that perform those things. To the extent that you can, pre-authorize, call your insurance company. I need these things. Can you recommend who I should go to? The insurance companies will have concierge services available. Look in your directory online through the insurance company and do that work up front because it'll save you a ton of time. I will also say then there's a subset of that. And sometimes, for example, in and in especially like anesthesiology, where there's not a lot of anesthesiologists out there and you go in for a surgery. And so you went to the hospital that was in the network, you're the surgeons in the network. So you think you're all great that everything's going to be fine with that. But then anesthesiologists, there are, just are not enough of them for insurance companies to, to negotiate with. So they stay out of the network and you did all your work. And the next thing you know, the person that put you under is not in the network. But what I'd suggest with that is working with your insurance company and saying, I did everything right. And unfortunately, you will be caught in this quagmire for a little bit and you'll have to work your way out of it. But the point is, instead of just panicking about it, what I'd suggest is you call the insurance company and say, I did everything you told me to do under your contract. I had no control over that. How can we work this out? I need this person covered in in network costs or I need you to cover this under my in network
0: deductibles and coinsurance. Scott, this is Scott. Yes. Regarding the lady that we just had interviewed a couple of weeks ago, she actually believed based on her insurance, her PPO, that she was in fact in network. But what happened was that that particular facility only fell out for like a month and then it was back in. Is that something that happens often? And if that's the case, then how would somebody prepare for that? It
2: doesn't happen often. So insurance companies will have contracts with their provider networks. They generally have multi-year contracts. Every period of time, two years, three years, they come due and they negotiate. And in negotiations, they um, make it public a lot of times that the hospital doctor slash you choose it is going to get out of the network. That gets the people in the plan nervous and they call the insurance company and they're trying to leverage each other to get better deals on both sides. Insurance company wants a lower cost from the doctor and the doctor wants to raise the rates in the hospitals. Was she employed and this was a plan through her employer? No. Okay. So then she needs to call the insurance company and she will have to call them and call them. And it's not always easy, but that is something they should help her manage.
1: Absolutely. Because
2: they were in a negotiating time period and oftentimes they'll retroactively, the agreement they did 30 days after it all fell apart, they'll roll it back to January. You know, if it was February, if they settle it, they'll roll it back to 1-1. So that's definitely a call to the insurance company. the claims department and say, we need to work through this. And also I jointly call the hospital and say, look, you didn't have this deal. I knew what these costs were beforehand and now you're going to charge me more. This is just totally unreasonable and we need to work through this. They need to do it in their own style and demeanor so that it works and it's not hostile. And if they're patient and it takes two, three, four, five phone calls, that should be resolved.
0: Wow. So in essence, it was just a fluke. It was just bad timing. In that case, yeah. The the one I gave you, the
2: anesthesiologist, can happen more times than not. And that's not a fluke. That's something endemic in the, the system that needs addressing. And it's just the reality of the system. If she wanted to email my website, I'd be happy to try to help her with that.
1: Well, thank you. We we appreciate that. And in that vein, let's talk about how we can negotiate for ourselves, because this same girl did have an issue where she had somebody, an organization that was supposed to negotiate for her and they dropped the ball. And so then she ended up in collections. I mean, it was just a complete mess. And in the end, she was actually able to negotiate on her own far better than anything they did for her just by... (laughs) you know, looking onto websites and finding out what their offerings were and everything. So what are some of the ways that people can negotiate if they get these huge bills?
2: Well, I want to applaud her for doing that. And that's, I'd like to use her as a focal point in my book and in the website, because that's exactly what I'm looking for. People like that, that take the initiative, get the information, and then just talk like they do any other consumer product and speak on their own behalf. And you'll find more times than not that that can work. Okay. So the, the bigger question is, how can you do this? Well, you have to understand the price. She was insured. She had an insurance company. She should look that up and shop within the insurance company of the providers. And most provider networks that the insurance companies offer through their website, you can see different pricing offered by different providers. And you look them up wow. and you can call them and ask them and then and shop. And then you might want to also look not just in your area where you live, but in the broader area where you live, in the same city and other parts of town. And or let's talk about this, go in a different part in the state that's relatively close. I have stories of people that had MRI costs in one area that were twenty five hundred dollars and they drove two hours and got it for four fifty.
1: Yeah, I found that fascinating in your book. Is that something I mean, they were able to drive this far and get better deals. But how do they deal with the I mean, these people were still in their network, I presume. Or how did that work? Well,
2: yeah, Absolutely. You look through your network. And you find another one that costs different money. And it could be an example of a, a new company that's brand new offering MRIs. And so they have lost leaders. They have a better price than the next one.
1: So if it's something, because obviously if I had a cold and I needed to go to the doctor, I don't want to drive two hours for $30 versus $50. But if you're talking about something like a surgery, it, a lot of times then I'm assuming could make sense to look into other areas that you might travel for that procedure.
2: That's the huge area. And there's uh, more and more companies, Amazon started doing them themselves through the employer health plans offered are encouraging people and rewarding people to shop their healthcare into other areas. I think I've lift an example in the book of a knee surgery in San Francisco being in the mid $70,000 and in Phoenix being at the high 30s. Same knee surgery. So what you have to be very, very careful of, that's just the quantitative side. You've got to get the qualitative side. What's the outcomes of those surgeons doing the work? And you do a little work with that and ask for, like you do anything else, you ask for references, either friends that you know, or people have had those surgeries performed by those, those individuals and you do some work on it and you understand a qualitative side. Key part of qualitative side is how many surgeries are they doing? The more surgeries they do, the better they are usually that's how you can start to ferret out whether you're going to get the quality from the individual and not just the cost because you don't want to just go cost because you you could get the low cost individual that has very bad outcomes and you'll end up spending more money in the long run because you'll go back and back because of complications. So you want to combine the two, but it is out there and it's happening all the time. And when you see it kind of amazes you, but now you get the power because of transparency that's starting to build in the industry. There's, There's also a firm called guru that you can look up. It's free. And it'll give price comparisons across the country.
1: Nice. Guru is at guru.com?
2: G-U-R-O-O dot com. Right. Wow. There's another one. The U.S. World News and Report Health Division has a fabulous website that shows pricing and outcomes by doctors. So it's, a, it's a good one. It's in the book and the website as well. If I can go back to when you start talking about pricing, too, in hospitals, you want to always ask for your bill. You don't want the insurance bill. The insurance bill, at the end of the day, they'll call it an explanation of benefits, and they package it all and say, here's all the charges that were submitted, and here's what your plan paid and didn't pay, and that's it. If you have a hospital stay, you want the list bill. You want to go through that and you can actually talk to them. It's like every other business, they will be overcharges potentially or wrong charges.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. And that makes me so angry that you would say that I can ask for that because I've asked for that at my doctor's appointments so many times. I know that's different from hospitals, but I'm so often told I can't tell you what it's going to be. And I've asked for how much is this going to cost me? Because I have a PPO. I have to pay out of pocket till I hit my deductible. And every time I go to the doctor, they won't tell me how much I'm going to end up paying.
2: Who did you ask the question to?
1: Uh, I, whoever checked me in, I guess.
2: The doctors will oftentimes not. And there's probably a veil there that makes some sense that they don't talk about money because they want to talk about your care that day. But if you get to the billing administrative assistant that's working in that and not the front desk person, that's who you want to talk to. Okay. Because I'll give you an example of mine with an MRI for a back situation. Surgeon said, no, no, I can't talk about that. I said, okay. And I went out to schedule an MRI with the billing assistant. The billing assistant said they couldn't tell me. And I said, that's okay. I'll go check out some things on my own. They called me back in a week. I hadn't called them. By the way, I knew I could get an MRI that was significantly cheaper than they were looking at. Uh I did ask the price and they gave it to and I got it cheaper. They called me back in a week because they were afraid I wasn't going to come back to the surgeon. And they gave me another MRI place to go that was cheaper as well. So some of this is there's no special sauce that's the right way to do it every single time. It's the more information you can get up front from other sources when you talk to people so that when you go in to talk to the physician... you're empowered with some information. One is about what your situation is so you can effectively communicate to them because on average, a primary care physician will have eight minutes to talk to you. So you need to go in and not, and I'm going to say this crudely, not waste their time. And then they'll respond to you more quickly. And one of the things you, it's very fair to talk to them and say, and it sounds like you did is doc, this is on my dime. I'm paying for this. Can you help me? And most of them will. Now they may say, I can't hear, but then they'll get you to, to someone in their office and then you have to talk with them and then you'll have to find your own way of communication and strategy and negotiation skills to end up with the result. But I would say, stay diligent and keep asking, be polite and have the information. And the other thing is at the end of the day is cash is king.
1: Uh-huh. If
2: you're paying for it and you can you say, I can pay for this now, That sometimes to change the conversation.
1: So, it sounds like I just need to be more diligent about standing up for myself and asking more questions and demanding more transparency. Is that right?
2: Yeah, and i what I would suggest that I said it just a couple minutes ago is be informed about what your objectives are. Do some research on that understand what the doctor's world is and situation is. And the reason you want to do that is because if you understand their world and what they're faced with everything, the more you understand that, the more effectively you can set up yourself to communicate with them so you they can hear you. Because communication only works when your message is understood by the other side. Just saying something doesn't mean you communicate it. You have to have the other side receive it and process it. So it's it's helpful to understand what they have to go through and understand that. And that only happens is if you really understand yourself And the the big thing about talking the medicine is keep emotion out of it. And that's really hard, really hard to do. But if you can keep emotion down, the provider side is seeing so many people so quickly that if they get somebody emotion involved, they're not getting facts and it's hard for them to make decisions. So to the extent that you can dial down emotion and if you can't do it personally, which is truly understandable, if you've got a, a serious situation, find an advocate to go with you.
1: I wanted to ask you about that because I would love to have an advocate and I'm sure other people would too, but I've kind of tried to search some out and I haven't really found anything. Are there advocates out there and how do you go about finding them? I mean, do you pay them individually? Are they part of certain health insurance plans? How does that work and what exactly do they do?
2: Let's just start simply with advocate, brother, sister, mother, daughter, you know, it doesn't have to be a pro. If you've done your research up front and you, you understand what you want to ask, and we've given a couple of websites today, the cool thing about the world right now is the transparency egg has been cracked and it's getting out. And then most people are very comfortable using technology to get it. So you don't have to pay somebody. You don't have to have a quote unquote professional do it. You can have a friend, a coworker, a family member who can go in and then you need, here's the other thing, you need to write out your appointment before you go. What are the questions you want to ask? Why? What information do you want to get out of it? Treat it just like a business model. Because here's here's the example I always give. If you walk in and you just had a test and you're concerned about cancer and and the doctor comes in and says you've got stage four, I'll tell you this. The studies show that you lose 71% of your cognitive reasoning when you're hit with a major healthcare situation. Wow! So if you're in there and you've written everything out and you got it all down and someone tells you that, I'll bet my bottom dollar your mind's mush. But if you have an advocate, again, doesn't have to be a professional and you've got your list down, they can go through it and they can hear that on your behalf. And the reason I bring it back to that level is because most people have a friend or a family member. It's doable. If not, if you need to get deeper, there are concierge services. If you do have some, a serious situation or a chronic situation, most insurance companies will have care managers, So you might want to call your insurance company and say, I need a care manager. Can they help me? They may not be in the room with you, but they can start coaching and helping and educating you and helping you find doctors and do that. So the insurance company is not just evil. (laughs) I, I try not to demonize anybody in my book. Everybody has value. You just have to figure out how to speak for yourself to get that value to work for yourself. Then there are some employers will hire concierge services as well that can be cooked into their programs where you call an advocate. So either the insurance company does it or there's third parties that'll do it. For individuals, I buy that type of service. I've not found that yet. When I do, I'll put that out. But That's something on my radar. And that's why I acquiesce to the family member, the relative, the neighbor, coworker.
1: In the book, you actually talked about, and this was with reference to prescription drugs, but you had talked about asking all these questions about the prescription drug. What side effects are they going to have? Is this the best one for me? When I read that, I thought... I know for myself, I always think the doctor has my best interest at heart, and I'm not saying that he doesn't, but that puts me in the place of I put so much faith and trust in him that I expect him to answer all those questions before I ask them. If he's saying I should take this medication, I'm trusting him to already know that the side effects are not that bad or it is the right one. There's nothing better. It is generic to save me money instead of the other. But I guess we need to actually ask all. Of these questions and not expect that to be done for us, correct?
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's the essence of the book. There's two or three different questions in your question. Let's, let's start with the one that just dealing with doctors, we're all passive for a host of reasons. One of them is that I call the doctor mystique. It's a well founded mystique. If you look back at medicine before the 50s, before antibiotics, people died over stuff that we wouldn't even think about today. And you had open heart surgeries, brain surgeries polio vaccines, measles, smallpox, the medicine has been incredible over the last 60 years. And that's a relatively short time period. And doctors did perform and do perform miracles. And so people started to think whatever they say is appropriate. I'll give you an example now. In 2017, there were approximately, I think it was 17 new cancer drugs that came out. Only 30% of them have been affected. 70% of the time, they're not effective. So we keep accelerating with all these new tools that are more expensive and being put out there. And doctors are deluged with these new treatments all the time. And they remember on a primary care level, they're seeing eight minutes every single patient. Yeah. And then they have to do all the paperwork that now the ACA and the insurance companies require. Their time is highly leveraged. So it's in your interest to effectively communicate what you have to them, so they talk to you directly about your issue. And doctors are human too; they can miss things. And you need to talk to them. And if you do it in a manner that they can hear you, they'll appreciate that. And I'll use a car analogy: if you went into your mechanic because your car's knocking and you don't think it works well, it's not working as well it did, and you went in with that level of definition to them, and everybody's experienced this one, and you give it to the mechanic that mechanic has no idea what's wrong with your car. If you could tell them it knocks when it's cold, it's the right side of the car. It's when I accelerate over 60. The more details you can have, the better chance they'll find something. The whole Dr. Mystique going back to the physician side is we all just walk in and say, they're going to run some tests on me. They're going to tell me everything. They're going to give me what I want. I'm going to go home and it's all done. And it just doesn't work that way. You got to help them help you. And the more you do, the better relationship you'll have with your primary care physician. And again, if you do it in your own way and tactfully and respectfully, let's just get in really basic terms. They have to pay liability insurance for malpractice. Yeah. If the more patients talk to them and they really know what's going on and they can fine tune it, that lowers their malpractice insurance and it causes them to treat more people more effectively quicker. I've got a story of a friend, a plastic surgeon, where they have a checklist they ask before surgery, because they're going to go to anesthesiologist and go under. They go through all the questions, drugs, everything they're taking, what surgeries you've had, everything. And the individual was prepped, and they were ready to do the surgery. And somehow it came out there was a drug they were taking that was definitely counteracted to the anesthesia. And if they'd performed it, there had been complications. And he called off the surgery. So he got lucky there. But that was the patient's fault, not the doctor's. But that, that's why I think if we just break down the mystique and we do our own homework and we don't play doctor, but we do homework and we describe effectively the way we're feeling and what we have. And then we get questions to ask about our treatment so that we can understand them. Because here's another side. One of our biggest problems in the US is we are non compliant with the procedures our physicians prescribe to us. Yes. <laughs> so we waste the pharmacy. If it doesn't work. It was supposed to take amoxicillin for 14 days, you take it for five because you feel better. Well, you know what? That bacteria now has a chance to become resilient to the moxicillin because you didn't get it really good at all. So if we do this and we get involved more with our physicians and we start to comply, it's our responsibility too to do it. They can't do everything for us.
1: That's a great point. So it seems like communication on everybody's side is really key. We as consumers have to learn better communication skills with doctors and everything just as much as you know they need to do it with us
2: two-way street. Yep.
1: Now, in that vein, I just wanted to ask you really quickly about prescription drugs because in your book, you talked about a case where just in asking, somebody got, they were being prescribed a pill that I think was $700 for this prescription. And just in asking, is there anything that I can get that's cheaper, a generic or something like that, it went down to something like 30 bucks, right?
2: Brian, right. so you've gone to your doctor, you've done your homework, you've got everything, you've asked your questions, it's time, there's going to be a prescription. And, and by the way, prescriptions are going to be the first thing to come out because one of the features of ACA is that patient satisfaction is now a feature of how physicians get paid. When we come in as consumers on primarily a passive level, and we want everything to work really well. And the doctor tells us, hey, you really got to quit just quit eating um, you know, spicy food. I'm going to give you a, a proton pump inhibitor or, or Nexium. When really, if they just stopped eating the spicy food, you could cure it yourself. Yeah. We want a pill. We want instant gratification as a society. And so the doctors are preordained to, to give that because now they have requirements on how they get paid if people are happy and people have the expectation they want to do that. So it's, it's just that's not a really great system we've got going on the pills, but that's there. But you want to ask and or if you want to state to the doctor again, this is on my dime. I'm paying most of this. What's the most cost effective way? and most cost-effective medicine I can take to treat this situation. So I would say cost-effective way first, because it may be a lifestyle choice. 50% of all claims in the U.S. are lifestyle-based. You have 100% control over lifestyle. Doesn't require a pill. Now, you might need to get over the hurdle. You, you need medicine to do it, but lifestyle, that's a big part of the book, too, is personal responsibility on that. But then you're going to look at that, and you say, so the first one is, is there a generic available? If generic's not available, then I've got a branded drug. Is this a single source branded drug? Meaning, it's the only branded drug out there that treats the situation. If it's not, are there other branded drugs? Let's look at them all in this category and say, what's the best one too? And which is the best one I should take? And engage the doctor with that. And why does he or she think that the one he or she has prescribed the one for you? And then even if you've got a branded drug or a single source drug, the next thing you want to do in this day and age is you go online. There's discount coupon cards. There's a number of them out there. You should look at a number of them. Every single time, because they oftentimes will get a lower price than the insurance plan price that you got through your insurance company, where they bought the insurance company to negotiate a discount. You can get more off of that. That's a no brainer. You want to do that. Then the third way you do it is a program called patient assistant programs. And these are not discount coupon programs offered by independent parties on drugs. These are the manufacturers of the drugs offering programs. And it's generally revolves around people who have lower income or high deductible plans or a combination of the two. And in the example you raised, there was a patient assistant program out there on that drug. Rx Hope is a website and they list approximately over 330 drugs that have these programs. The programs are offered by the manufacturing companies. They change, they're not locked in, they're not guaranteed. They may be for a 12-month, 24-month period or something like that. And they have their own financial requirements. But it's for a phone call If you could cut a drug cost from $700 to $35, why not make a phone call? Oh, yeah. So it's not just income-based, too. I have an example of an individual. Eloquus is a blood thinner. It's one of the newer blood thinners and has some advantages, but it's significantly, it's about $430, let's call it. After insurance discounts, insurance companies will get their discounts that they've negotiated with the manufacturer and the prescription benefit managers. So it was four hundred thirty-two. dollars through patient assistant program with someone that just had a high deductible plan. Income was not an issue. They had significant income. Took that drug from four thirty-two to $10 a month for 24 months. And the hospital and the doctors didn't talk about that. The pharmacy didn't talk about that. I've been in pharmacies and shared with pharmacists about that program that didn't know about that.
1: That's just insane.
2: <laughs> so the cool thing is you're going to go to a primary physician. That's going to be your first exposure and experience in the healthcare situation. They're probably going to prescribe a pill for you. Or you're going to go to a pharmacist to get that pill. Well, there's a, some really easy steps people can take to start to become a consumer. So let's say you failed at talking to the physician. You didn't say anything to them. They just dictated to you. You walked out of the room. And so you failed all the way of being a consumer on all the other, you didn't really walk in with a list and you didn't know who you were. Okay. You failed everywhere, but now you have a prescription Just going on and pulling some of these sites and in our site, we've got a a discount card as well, but there's a number of them and I encourage people to look at a lot of them. If you do that and spend five minutes and you lower the cost of what you were going to pay, hopefully we get the excitement or the the encouragement and the hope that things can happen with that first experience when you failed everything else that you still could lower your cost.
1: Before we wrap up, I want to make sure that we cover quickly some other options for people who, if they don't have health insurance through an employer, they've been laid off or they're Mm self-employed or whatever. For so long, it seemed like it's such a huge cost out there to do it by yourself, but it's starting to change. So what are some of the other options or alternatives to buying an individual health plan?
2: Christian or religious-based health plans are becoming more prevalent. And they're worth looking into. You just have to be eyes wide open when you do so. They call them Christian plans primarily now, but there's also Islamic and Jewish-based programs like that, but they're they're all religiously based. And so they have tenants that you have to adhere to, and they're usually tied to the religion. When you get in, they really step back into what insurance was about. There's some basic coverages that are all covered. It's not a ACA or Affordable Care Act compatible compliant plan. They do have pre-existing condition limitations. So if you have a pre-existing condition, they can either turn you down or exclude you on that. And then what they'll do is they have a certain range of coverage they have and for could be catastrophic or different types of coverages, what they do is they have, and some of the terms they use as our prayer pools that all the members, you get on their site and you say I have a prayer request for a certain situation, health situation for dollars to be spent, that goes out to the membership and the membership contributes to it above their premiums those are as you look at the company you would ask that company how many prayer requests are met those are key questions asked. ask but these are programs that are working they do work and that's the concept of insurance is that the few individuals that have those large claims look to the greater good of the total population involved and they contribute and cover those people because someday it could be them I'm not here. I'm not going to cut your health care costs in half. I'm going to have you take better control of your life so you understand what you're getting into. And we're going to find ways to save money. But in these situations, they can cut the health premiums significantly knowing that you might have to contribute for somebody else down the road. So you kind of have to factor that in, but it, they're very interesting to look into. There's also minimum plans now out there Just since 2017 have become more prevalent that will only offer insurance for a year. So they're they're not going to be end all, but they could be a good gap coverage for somebody that's changing jobs or lost a job and looking for something to on an affordable basis cover them. I'd also suggest if you've changed jobs or lost a job, you have COBRA, which is still out there, and you can buy the plan you were on from your employer. And it will be at a higher cost because the employer is no longer subsidizing it. But you can get that covered. and Maybe the same network, therefore, the same doctors you're using now would be in that network. Another program that's different is if you have kids in college let's say you have a, a single parent household and you have to take a family plan through your employer, you know, your son or daughter's in college, you might want to look at the health plan that the university is offering because oftentimes they're better than the one you have. It's significantly less money and they're better and they're less money because you're sending an 18 year old, to a 22 year old who's, you know, 99% of the time is going to be healthy as a horse Sure. and they're not going to have a claim. So that way you could put them on that plan And drop family coverage or two-person coverage at your employer and save yourself money there.
1: Great tip. What about associations, specifically Chambers of Commerce? Are they starting to offer these plans to their members?
2: They are. So the Trump administration about a year ago, year and a half ago, opened up association plans. And I'll say that gets kind of the Christian care. That makes a lot of sense. You know, why do we have all these? I'm an employer with only 10 people, but I'm in the plumbers why don't I aggregate with all these other plumbers? And we know the law of large numbers, I'm going to get better purchasing power. Kind of makes sense. So Trump administration broadened and allowed those plans to exist. They like the Christian plans, though. They're not 100% ACA compliant. They don't have the 10 essential features of the ACA plans. So pre-existing condition can be an issue there, but there's certainly something to look at. And that's maybe going back to the open enrollment question. When you go through open enrollment, Especially if you're an individual, you want to exhaust every single avenue. Going to healthcare.gov is great, and there's other ways you can get at it because they'll help you understand if you get subsidies or not, and all of the ACA compliant plans are available. But there's other stuff out there. There's Christian plans. There's the student plan we talked about. there's, There's these programs we're talking about out there, and you should investigate them all because you're going to pay a significant portion of your disposable income every year on this.
1: We have covered a ton of stuff and we haven't even scratched the surface on what's in your book. So I really want to encourage people to go and read your book to find out what else is in there that we didn't even get a chance to cover. So the book is called healthcare is making me sick. And you have also, you have a website called uncovered hc.com. Tell me a little bit about that website real quick.
2: Okay. So, you know, unfortunately about books, The moment you put the last period on the last sentence of the last paragraph, it's outdated. Yeah. (laughs) So what we thought is we wanted to continue the dialogue and it's changing every day. So we created the website to do that. So it's a content-based website that's continuing the story. And we're bringing in pharmacists and doctors and specialists and insurance specialists in the area who are providing more and more information and we'll be broadening our tools. Like when you asked about are there concierge services, we envision within the next six months of having one of those on there that people could buy from us if they So on it. So it'll be a continued discussion of free content. We're asking people to join in the discussion with us. So if we're not covering something that they'd like covered, we'll do that. Or if they found a better way than we even suggested on how they save some money, we want to hear that story. And what we want to encourage people is if we've helped anybody in any way, shape or form is tell three other people and try to get this story to go viral in essence. And if we're doing that, we're going to better each and everybody's life and hopefully control the healthcare costs that way.
1: That's such an important thing, and thank you for doing that because we all need you know, more information and ways to cut costs and all of those things. So UncoveredHC.com is the website, and the book is Healthcare is Making Me Sick, and you actually have a special offer for our listeners. Is that right?
2: Yes, we do. So during this open enrollment period, if people are interested in the book, they should go on to UncoveredHC.com. Slash sense able at C E N T S A B L E and request a book and we will have a drawing and we'll be giving 10 free books away.
1: All right. That's great. Thank you so much. UncoveredHC.com slash sensible, C E N T S A B L E. And they can sign up to get the free book. And we're also going to put that link on our website in the show notes so that people can access that more easily. Scott Heiser, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you so much for writing the book, Healthcare is Making Me Sick. Well,
0: great. Thanks so much, Bobby and Scott, for having me on. A big sensible thank you to our guest professor, Scott Heiser, author of Healthcare is Making Me Sick. Visit uncoveredhc.com to get the book and find a ton of great resources to save you money on healthcare.
1: We covered so much during that interview, but I promise you, we didn't even scratch the surface of what's in his book. It's a great tool to have at your disposal before making any healthcare decisions. And Scott is giving away 10 free copies of his book right now to Sensible Chat listeners. Just go to uncoveredhc.com sensible and enter to win. Do it now because this offer is only good for 10 days. So go to UncoveredHC.com slash Sensible and enter to win your free copy of Healthcare is Making Me Sick. You'll also find a link in the show notes for this episode at SensibleChat.com. That's Sensible with a C. If you value the green, if you save as you go, your wealth is closer than it seems, and you can
2: make that.
1: Welcome to Saving Secrets, where we share super easy and ready-to-use savings tips you may not have heard before. If you've got saving secrets you'd like to share, email me, Bobby B-O-B-B-I, at sensiblechat.com, and I'll share your tip in an upcoming episode. This is going to be a quick one. Ready? Don't pay full price for a gift card, ever. I found several different places online where you can buy gift cards at discount prices, but the one I like best is cardpool.com. Not only can you buy at a discount, but you can sell the ones you don't want, and they have automated kiosks in various locations. So I can take my unwanted gift card to my local Target store, deposit it right into the machine, and get my cash right there, much like Coinstar but there's nothing for sale at the kiosks. You have to go to cardpool.com to buy your discounted gift cards. So if you're buying them for an event, make sure you give yourself enough time for them to be shipped. That's my saving secret. Now I want to hear yours. Email me Bobby B-O-B-B-I at sensiblechat.com. The next episode will publish just a few days before Thanksgiving. So we're going to talk about gratitude and how it can impact our money. Our guest will be Daphne Wiswell, and she has some amazing stories to tell. Between health and finances, Daphne has been faced with a lot of hardships and persevered through them all. While she could very easily feel disgruntled, she exudes gratitude. Her story really inspired me, and I can't wait for her to share it with you. In the meantime, check out her website, DaphneWiswell.com. I'd love to hear what you're grateful for this year. So drop me a line, Bobby B-O-B-B-I, at sensiblechat.com. And let's remind each other of all we have to be thankful for. Thanks for listening. And remember to leave a rating and review for this podcast. I'd love to know what you think. Until next time, keep spending and saving the sensible way.
0: That does it for this episode of Sensible Chat with your host, Sensible Bobby. Links for all the resources mentioned can be found in the show notes for this episode at sensiblechat.com. That's sensible with a C. While you're there, find your favorite app to be sure and never miss a show. On social media, look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you need help with your budget or want to share your thoughts, reach out to Sensible Bobby through the contact page at sensiblechat.com. That's sensible with a C i you